Welcome to the Hustle and Flow podcast. The platform we use to explore varying perspectives and opinion through candid conversation. We chat about philosophy, business, and all things life. I'm Sean the Hustle. And I'm Les the Flow. Let's go. All right, guys, joining us today on the podcast is Jeremy Hurst. Jeremy is a curious human who is a lover of thoughtful conversation, deep self-inquiry, and is an advocate of combining modern practicality with the ancient wisdom behind mindful practice. He is a big believer of providing value, continual improvement, and being curious in all respects of life. He expresses himself and this philosophy through the platform of the same name, Value, Improvement, Curiosity, as well as through hosting the Mindful and Intentional podcast. Jeremy is also the co-founder of Identity, a software platform aiming to declutter the internet by introducing principles of minimalism to our modern digital mediums and devices. So with that, I'd like to welcome you on board. Thanks for joining us on the conversation today, Jeremy. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today, Jeremy. And Liz has given us, I guess, some cliff notes for, you know, the Jeremy that I guess we see online and, and those sorts of things. But what we'd really love to do and invite you to do is tell us your origin story, where you're from, how you've come to be the Jeremy of today, and feel, back, uh, feel free to go back as far as you'd like. We'd love to hear all about it. Sure thing. Uh, I grew up uh, in a town on the northern border of Philadelphia. It's a town called Abington. And, you know, when I think about my childhood, I think the most defining characteristic was that I was always a child in motion, so to speak. I played a ton of different sports, right? Uh, Basketball being my favorite, but when it wasn't season for basketball, I was playing soccer, baseball, uh, even dabbled at tennis, which I was terrible at, but we won't, we won't go too deep into the tennis story. Um, I was also a very, very strong student, um, but it was also important to me to be you know, popular in school and talk to all the girls and, and have tons of friends. So I was kind of constantly in, in motion, which you know, I like to think is a good thing, you know, keeping uh, young people and, and, and kids busy. But, you know, when I look back on it and you know, not to apply too much kind of post facto narrative to the story, I think a lot of the constant motion had to do with not wanting to deal with trauma, so to speak. Um, and I'll give you maybe a couple different examples uh, one of which is, you know, my name is Jeremy Hurst, and I'm named after my mother's husband, who's not my father. So that maybe will tell you something about the, the situation that I was born into. Um, my mother was uh, permanently brain damaged in a severe car accident before my first birthday. And I, I don't know a ton of detail around the accident, but I, I do know it had something to do with the type of life that she was living. Uh, my biological father uh, died while being incarcerated for manslaughter. And you know, it wasn't a manslaughter, you know, you get in a car accident and somebody dies, you know, he actually killed another human being with a hammer, but it was deemed that uh, there was no premeditation or intent, so to speak. So, you know, I, I point all of this out not to create 
some sob story or, or something like that, but rather I only have recently realized in the last few years that I actually haven't had conversations about any of those things. Uh, I was raised by my, my grandmother as a result of, of that situation that I, that I just described. And she was an amazing woman. Uh, I kind of credit her for saving my life, so to speak, but she also wasn't good at, at talking about trauma. So I, I think I kept myself in, in constant motion and, and, and busy doing different things. Um, I, I maybe told myself it was, was resilience or, or strength, but I think it was more likely uh, fear and, and avoidance kind of um, psychological coat of, coat of arms, so to speak. So, you know, that all led up into uh, going to university at New York University uh, here in, in New York City. Um, and again, I, I did very well academically, but that, that same tendency to, to keep moving didn't really didn't really stop at all. Um, it changed a little bit because uh, it turns out I wasn't actually good enough at basketball to, to make the team. So this athletics part of my identity kind of fell away. But of course, in college, you can replace that uh, with additional studying. You can replace that with uh, a lot of additional partying and, and free time and exploration in, in the city. Um, but that tendency to just continue moving and not really uh, partake in any self-inquiry or, 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 or try to sift through the, the, the traumas that I experienced as a child. Um, you know, I, I ended my college experience still not knowing uh, at all who I was or what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I kind of think of those four years in, in university as, as kind of lost years, so to speak, as I, I didn't do the type of uh, deep work that um, maybe I would have uh, liked it to. But, you know, ultimately when I, when I was graduating, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I, I basically just went to the NYU careers page and uh, basically made a list of all of the biggest and most reputable companies on that page and started applying. And ultimately that's how I landed in uh, the world of technology, um, which of course I developed a, a love for, um, but it was kind of a uh, windy, winding route to, to, to that world and, and kind of the world that I play in today, if that makes sense. Yeah, crazy story, man. Thanks for sharing um, an incredible, incredible story. Um, and there's so much that I'd love to touch on, but, you know, I'd really love to sort of bring you back to, you know, this disruptive upbringing you must have had as a kid. I mean, how, what was that like for you? Um, and what do you remember of it that, you know, maybe was that, that, you know, first gave you the impression that it was disruptive and different, you know, in your younger years? Yeah, I think... So when, my, when I went to live with my grandmother, uh, she put me into a private school. So I became uh, kind of a token black kid in a primarily white school. And that was yet another kind of challenging psychological situation that I never really paused to have the conversation about like what that meant or, or how I felt about that. Um, I think one result of that environment, you know, being a, a lower income minority student in a, a school that 
is 95% white, it was of course very apparent the you know wealth disparities, right? If I ever went to someone's home, you know, four car garages and you know six bedrooms and you know golf in the backyard and these types of things, I didn't even know golf was a thing <laughs> when I when I was growing up. So I think I developed uh, a little bit of latent shame of, of, of where I came from and, and, and who I was, uh, you know, to this day, there's a lot of my extended family that I have, uh, virtually no relationship with. And I think the, the reason that I, I kind of spent so much, so many years, not kind of trying to figure out who I was and where I came from and, 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 you know, how all these different people may have contributed to, to the situation that I ended up in. I, I didn't want to do that work because I was, I was ashamed uh, of that past. And, you know, it's only really recently that, you know, you can kind of see in a lot of families with money, there are lots of other things lacking. And, you know, when I, now I'm starting to explore some of those relationships, uh, some of the most loving and caring uh, and empathetic people, um, you know, perhaps uh, the economic means aren't, aren't, aren't there, but, you know, it turns out life is kind of a give and take when, when certain things are, are, are missing, other things kind of compensate and, and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's really interesting um, because I guess you've had these experiences where you've seen both sides of the coin. And um, yeah, the... We hear about it a lot where there's, you know, people have a lot of finances or, you know, they're considered wealthy that they're lacking in these other areas of life. And um, what sort of, I'm just interested, like in your situation, what are those sorts of things you saw that were lacking? Was it things that you, your friends said to you or things that you just observed? Like what were some of those things and how young were you when you, when you realized that? Because I think a lot of us realize that when we're really late or later in life. Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out to me was that oftentimes, and it's kind of a interesting observation, but a lot of times when money is present, money takes the place of maybe more uh, substantive foundations for relationships to be built upon. So, you know, when, when someone has a birthday and gets a car, that's a really amazing celebratory moment, yet the dad's not present at the birthday party because he's working in some other country, you know, doing a, doing a deal or, or something like that. So, you know, I, I, I noticed this in a lot of different uh, friends and, and, and people that I knew is that money became this, this, this stand-in for, 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 for love and support and, and, and lots of other things that are I know now are incredibly important for, for self-development. Um, you know, money tried to kind of play that role, which I think it does a pretty poor job at. So that's, that's probably the biggest one that stands out to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting. You put it in that way that it kind of acts like a stand in. It's like, uh, it feels that because I've come across, you know, some stories quite recently as well of, of people that are very wealthy. Uh, they're people that, you know, um, are friends of people I'm close to and, you know, 
their families have this extraordinary wealth, yet uh, the same thing, like you said, their parents are in a different country, right? And they've been, the children have been in a country for years and years by themselves. And, you know, some of them are in a very good mental state at the moment. They've had all the resources available to them in the world, except their parents. And, and it's very interesting, I guess, to note that, you know, as you put it, that people try to use money as this stand-in that's not really, doesn't turn out to be as substantive as, as I think they'd hope. And then it's kind of like, where does that line, where do you draw that line? Because there's also the argument to be made of people are trying to provide the best for their children and do things, but then, you know, uh, it kind of doesn't really turn out that way for some people. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's um, a podcast that I recently listened to it's called Track Your Life by this guy, Boyd Vardy. Uh, is that name familiar to either of you guys? No, not familiar to me. So highly, highly recommend the, the podcast and, and, and looking into to Boyd Vardy. He's uh, a South African wildlife conservationist. And recently on this podcast, um, he does this uh, kind of retreat into solitude, so to speak, for 40 days and 40 nights in the South African wilderness. And he does a daily podcast each day um, to, to kind of allow his followers to, to join in that experience. And on one specific day, the podcast that he releases is called Defining Abundance. And he offers up this description of wealth. And I think it's probably the best definition of, of wealth that uh, I've ever heard. And uh, I, I have it, you know, written down. I've been coming back to it uh, for the last few months, trying to basically craft my my own definition. But I, I think, you know, growing up, wealth meant economic means. Wealth meant, do I get a car for my birthday? Wealth meant, how big is the house? Like, wealth meant, do I have the new thing? Like, all of the things that consumerist culture tells you wealth wealth means. But in this podcast episode. Boyd describes wealth in, uh, he, he almost writes this poem to describe, to describe wealth. And he describes wealth as, as stillness. He, he described uh, wealth as um, adequate rest. He, he describes wealth as uh, strong relationships, the ability to feel and to connect with other people around you. Uh, he defines wealth as uh, being creatively engaged and having work that you deeply care about. You know, he has all of these different attributes and ways of describing it. And I, I think it takes uh, some real kind of conscious uh, analyses to come up with some type of definition, a definition of wealth. And it takes a, a kind of a steady uh, questioning of that definition and, and revisiting the definition to make sure that it's, 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 it's kind of evolving and changing as, as the priorities of your, of your life kind of change as well. But uh, I loved his definition and he probably does a better job of describing it than I do. Yeah. And um, it's, it's such an interesting thing to talk about. And like, I guess it's um, lifting the lid a little bit, so to speak. And, you, you know, especially in a society that is, you know, generally dominated by the, I guess, the premise of economic growth and and um, continual progress in this sort of way. Like, um, I've just actually been reading a book um, by Fritz Schumacher. It's called um, Small is Beautiful. And it's one of these books that uh, it was written in the 70s. And he talks about 
you know, exactly this thing about identifying the fact that, you know, society at large, we've sort of um, been consumed by these emotions of envy and, and greed to the point where we've lost sight and connection with what's real and what's true for us, you know. And this is sort of what bridges the gap to me in terms of what's the difference between um, true wealth is and, um, I guess, uh, financial wealth or, or economic wealth, is that we've sort of lost sight of, uh, you know, the truth of what the purity of life, the, the connection with life. And when we lose sight of that, we essentially, you know, we have... Uh, we're not aligned anymore, you know, we're not in tune with what is real with reality, right? Um, where we've, we've got this veil <clears throat> that's sort of shrouding our view of what's, what's truly important and real in our lives. And like you said, when you're able to introduce a little bit of uh, essence of mindfulness, the principles of stillness and um, these sorts of things, you're able to sort of let this, um, noise slowly quieten down and find the connection of what truly brings essentially peace and fulfillment and contentment in your life. And like this story that you tell of your upbringing, I think it's one that many listeners and I, I myself, you know, would resonate with just because I've lived that life as well in terms of that, that wanting to, to run, that need to chase something, you know, in, in, in avoidance of, of connection, in avoidance of inquiry, in avoidance of, um, you know, asking ourselves the hard questions that subsequently and paradoxically lead us to the true, you know, essence and beauty of life itself. So, so yeah, it's a very interesting thing to talk about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think this, this idea shows up, you know, over and over and over again in, in almost every area of life. I mean, you know, Sean, I think you're uh, pretty engrossed in, in, in the fitness world. And, you know, when I didn't make the basketball team back in college, you know, I was like, well, uh, this part of my identity is falling away. I'm going to just start going to the gym way more. And I started doing two a days and, you know, hitting the dining hall and eating twice as much. And I, I put on I was the heaviest I've ever been. I mean, I'm five, seven and a half and I was 195, which is not a healthy weight. If you're not a bodybuilder or something like that, I was just walking <laughs> around and couldn't, couldn't touch my toes and, and, and these types of things. And at some point when you stop worrying about you know, the aesthetics of being big and you start thinking about what it means to be healthy and, and what it means to be strong, you realize that it's not about the next set or, or, or the heavier rep. It turns out like rest is just as equal, uh, just as important to, to doing the next set. It, it turns out uh, not just eating more, but what you put in your body, it, it could be less, but, but what you're putting in your body uh, matters, right? It, it, it turns out they're, you know, actually kind of doing less uh, can be more, right? And, you know, for me, when I first discovered the world of, of, of mindfulness, I mean, this was kind of the you know, mind explosion moment. What, like, it turns out sitting down for 15 minutes a day doing nothing is maybe the 
most profound addition that I could ever make to my life, right? Uh, you know, it, it turns out that you know, focusing on your breathing and, and bodily sensations can, can help me tune into what it feels like to be angry and frustrated and help me kind of operate in my life with more equanimity and, and, and to, to, to have a better relationship with, with, with my wife and my grandmother. Like it, it turns out slowing down and, and doing less quite often is, is, is the solution to, 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 to being more effective in, in lots of different ways. Most definitely, most definitely. And I know I can tell already Les is deeply resonating with you because Les's personal creed is more in less, right? And um, it's something that I've been trying to adopt myself as of late. And um, I can attest to it as well. Like you said, sitting down with yourself for 15 minutes, it can be profound, right? Especially if you're someone who never, ever used to do that. You take that time to actually figure out how you feel, why you've been running so hard. And, and just, yeah, like you said, uh, being in tune with the sensations of your body and you can start to tap into why you're acting a certain way because you can start to understand why you feel a certain way. And then in doing less, we're actually getting a lot more out of it. And um, I'd love for Les to, to give his thoughts on what you just explained for us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, um, more and less is really a way of life for me. Um, and it's as simple as those three words. And it's also infinitely deeper um, and more profound than I could ever explain, you know, and this can be applied in um, every micro moment of my life and in anyone's life, you know, and like my feeling is that there's a greater version <clears throat> to you know, quote unquote, doing nothing because it seems counterintuitive to what we've been taught, you know, up until this point in all our lives in terms of this um, societal conditioning and the need for production and efficiency and speed and all these types of things. But I need to remind people all the time that uh, as I teach meditation, that the choice the intentional choice to do nothing and sit in stillness is still doing something, right? It's a beautiful choice that you're making, right? To, to turn it, like essentially ignore what is um, outside, the noise of, of the outside world and really recede inward and, and find uh, clarity and peace that rests within each of us, right? And this is the only way for us to really do that, to continually tap into it. And it's not so much something that you will, you know, ever master in the sense that you will come to a point of mastery and realization and, you know, quote unquote, enlightenment, right? This is a challenge for us to be applied on a moment to moment basis for, for our entire lives until we are no longer able to consciously make that choice, right? Until we take our last breath. And, and that is the, that is like, to me, like a beautiful analogy for, for what life is truly about. It's a challenging thing for us to, you know, put ourselves in front of every single moment, right? But it is a choice to challenge ourselves, to continually to get better. But then, you know, um, we only get better to cope better with, with this, you know, beautiful struggle that is 
that is essentially existence that is you know the ability to have you know a cognitive thought and thinking and an intelligence and to to try and make sense of what it is that that life truly is so so yeah yeah uh, extremely well said and you know being an entrepreneur in the in the world of technology what's incredibly interesting to me is that this, this same phenomenon is 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 playing out in in the world of technology right it's this 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 constant desire for for more right there's a, a new app for for everything uh, you know it's happening on the consumer side it's, it's happening on the enterprise side uh you know there's there's software for chat and a different software for video and a different software for collaboration and a different software for customer relationship management and a different software for inventory and on and on and on and on and on and Turns out you could do a lot with Google Docs. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like as a as a very kind of crude, uh, simple example. And of course, you can't run a two billion dollar company with with Google Docs. That's not that's not kind of what I'm what I'm suggesting. But you know, part of what we're thinking about at Identity is this idea that you know the the internet has kind of surreptitiously taken over our our entire life. Right in the in the span of call it I don't know fifteen or twenty years ago you know if I if I go back twenty years the only thing I was doing on the internet was uh, twenty years when I was twelve I don't even know if I had the internet when I was twelve maybe AOL Instant Messenger or something like that right email and, and chat and then you know got to college and it turns out your 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 syllabus is online and your class schedule is online. And then at some point, maybe you get a credit card and it's on auto pay where you're paying on the website. And, you know, now everything is digital. Every single facet is digital. Like people are, you, know, you walk outside, everybody has headphones in. So they're, they're streaming you know, Spotify or Apple Music or, 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 or something. You, you walk into the subway, everyone staring at their phone. Uh, you walk into any office, people are sitting in front of a computer for eight to 12 hours every single day, right? Our, our entire lives have, have, have been taken over and, and many of it is, much of it is good, right? There's a lot of productivity, quote unquote productivity and, and, and efficiency gain. But you know, at some point, maybe about two years ago, I was you know, employed full time, uh, working, you know, leading a, a sales team at a software company. And I was, uh, working on a couple different side projects. Um, I think Sean, you and I are kindred spirits with the, with the hustle mentality, trying to, trying to build and, and work on different things. But I was sitting in front of my computer one night and you know, my browser had 45 different tabs open. I've got like iMessage, Slack, you know, I'm, I'm got my phone, open, like TVs on. And I was just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what am I doing? And, you know, I'm pretending to do 45 different things at the same time, but of course, multitasking is a mirage, right? You're just very quickly switching back and forth between all of these different things. And there's kind of a, a cognitive exhaust or a mental switching cost every time that you do that. So in everything that we're trying to do is like, how can we, simplify and organize that experience to allow you to actually focus and pay attention to the things that matter 
And hopefully if we can help people do that effectively, maybe they can spend less time online, right? Because I don't know about you, but every time I talk to a friend or a relative and I ask them like, you know, what was the highlight of last month or last year? Or what are you really excited about right now? They generally talk about offline things. They talk about, you know, the, the, the birth of their niece. They, they talk about someone getting married. They talk about running a marathon and how excited they are to accomplish that, the, the book that they're working on. Like all of these things where people find deep meaning and deep purpose generally isn't like doing email triage or like doing something on Twitter or like all of these different things. So, you know, hopefully if we can do our jobs well, uh, there's less of an incentive to, to, to multitask and, and keep so many things open and, and we can kind of return people's ability to, to, to focus and really pay attention to the things that they, that they want to spend their time on. Mm. It's amazing, man. I think it's so interesting um, that you say it's coming from someone that's in tech, right? Because essentially what I take from what you're saying is to pay attention to these offline moments and to try and have more of them, right? Whereas it sounds kind of counterintuitive for someone from the outside looking and saying like, ah, Jeremy's a tech guy. Why would he be telling me to go <laughs> offline? <laughs> right? But I think that's, that's really cool. And that like, the point to that is if someone like you is telling people or is able to identify that, right. Being so deep and heavy into that world. Um, you've got the insights, man. And, and I would really implore people to, to listen to your advice. You know, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, being in circles with, with other entrepreneurs, other people that work in technology, it is mind boggling. The number of, technology executives that don't allow their kids to use social media yeah that that, that uh give their kids no screen time at night after school you know they, they set up all these rules and restrictions and then go to work and build products that they don't want their children using so you know i'm the first person to say that technology is amazing you know what i mean so like the other part of what we do is like empowering people to do to do incredible things online right that from from a dorm room somebody can launch a, an, an e-commerce store and build it on shopify and use the necessary tools and you know our, our software allows them to interact with all those different things more more efficiently so we're empowering people at the at the same time um but trying to kind of apply these ethical or sustainable principles in the in the process of doing so but uh yeah no it's it's it, it's crazy to me how, how many people just like completely cut off the you know, people in their lives from from these tools it, it, it's probably just like you know maybe 30 years ago that was the tobacco executives making sure that their kids were nowhere near <laughs> cigarettes and, and these types of things but uh it's pretty pretty funny to think about yeah well it seems it is quite an addictive medium right and um for all of us, no matter how much willpower we have, um, if you, you know, listen to other people as well who have been in the tech world and developed these platforms and things that we all use, they'll tell you that it's like they're designed to keep you there. It's that, never, that infinite feed, um, right? And, and when it's infinite and, and us wanting to be humans, and it's like that red pop-up box and the notifications. I've noticed like on my Facebook now, I keep getting these 
super useless notification, <laughs> right? I've so gone from such a, hasn't posted in two months. Yeah, like. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like someone who you haven't interacted with in 17 years posted a photo. I'm like, why are you telling me this? And then when you stop to think about it, it's like, it's because as, as a person who wants to get through shit, I like, I have to get that number to zero. And for sure it's picked up that it's like, every time this guy comes on, he has to mark them all as red. So we're just going to give him more. And maybe if you give him more, he'll stumble across something that he likes and then he'll stay and we'll go down the rabbit hole. And then the ads we can show him because he's online all the time will pop up and he'll buy some shit and we'll make more money. Off <laughs> right? like, you know, it's, it's so funny, right? Because what you're, what you're talking about, you know, the, the same idea we, that I just kind of mentioned, that, the idea that uh, the internet has uh, surreptitiously taken over our lives. I mean, because that process has been so unconscious, uh, people have never sat down to be mindful or intentional about that process. So uh, I'll give you a very you know, tactical example. You know, I have in my identity account to, uh, maybe to give you a description of identity in more literal terms, when you log into the software, uh, basically transforms everything that you do. All of the different websites get transformed into tiles, almost almost like apps on a, on a smartphone. So in my account, I have a bunch of different tiles, um, uh, probably four or five of them are for Facebook. But those tiles point to specifically where I want to go. So I have, a, I have a tile for the Facebook advertising manager because normally you go to facebook.com and you land in the feed. And that's where you see the little, little red circle with the 12 notifications about Bob from elementary school who just got married to Susie who you don't even know, right? So, you know, optimizing your experience to help you to actually get things done is, is a huge part of the internet because, you know, going to Facebook and then clicking up into the menu and then going to the advertising manager takes seven seconds and chances are you get distracted by the cat meme and, and, and somebody's beach, you know, your ex-girlfriend's beach photo that, that's still looking pretty good. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, 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 they purposely design the feed and what to show you first to make you scroll a few times. So, I mean, Facebook is, is, is just one in, in a myriad, a myriad of examples, but you know, I, I almost think of identity. If, if, if Google is the, the search engine for the open internet, uh, identity is almost your search engine for for your own private corner of the of the internet, right? When I search finance, I get my three brokerage accounts, my two credit cards, and my bank accounts, and not random finance stuff from you know Wall Street Journal that wants me to click so they can show me some ads, right? It's it's, mm. it's very tailored to my own experience, and there's no uh, notifications and, and pop ups like we, we we send very 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 few emails because ultimately people should be signing up to, to take some value from the software and they should understand the value of that software without us banging on their door every six seconds to try to get them to come back. Yeah. It's a super interesting way to look at it. Um, and so do you guys design that? Like do people curate it themselves or is the, the point of the software to kind of give people that tool to be able to not be so easily distracted and to hone in on the things that they they want to be focused on? Yeah, so people curate the experience themselves because ultimately your experience online and the things that you do are, are likely very different than Leslie and are likely very different than, than, than what I do. So each person completely curates that experience to, to match whatever it is that they're, that they're doing when they're on a computer.
Yeah, and that's really cool. And I think that makes sense, right? Because the other way around is kind of what's happening right now, which is we're all being fed these things, which, you know, subconsciously, we're not really, we don't know we're being uh, drawn towards. And then that's kind of dictating the experience. But what I like about what you've just explained is um, we do have to, I guess, slow down, be mindful about what we want to achieve, what we want to experience when we're on the internet and curating it would allow us to do that. Yeah, very, very much so. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting you, you asked that question because one of the decisions that we've had to make in the past was like, you know, when people sign up for the product, there's kind of a choice that you can make. I can, I can try to make the process as, as quick and easy as possible. And the, the way to do that would be to, to basically try to, you know, maybe, maybe ingest all the data from your browser to look at like your favorites and your browsing history to kind of curate that experience for you. But I would almost equate that to, you know, recently I just moved into a new apartment and it would be amazing if there was a button that I could press that says, move all of my old shit from my apartment into my new apartment and everything is done for you. Like that would be amazing. But it turns out when I moved, I threw out 12 trash bags of garbage, of stuff that was in my closet, things that I don't longer use, clothes that I don't like. I donated a bunch of things. You know what I mean? So like that process of actually being intentional of, okay, where am I putting things in my new space and, and how am I going to optimize my life for, for today and not, not seven years ago? It's actually a really important, important part of the move itself, right? So we made a decision to say, we're not going to make it easy to just upload all of your history from Chrome because it turns out you're just like 98% of other people who've been very mindless about their experience on the internet. And if we ingest all of that data, you're going to have the same garbage experience that you've kind of built without thinking about it. So it does create a little bit of friction or a little bit more work that people have to do up front. Um, but turns out anything in life that's worthwhile requires a little bit of effort and a little bit of work. And, you know, and, and it's, it's, to me, it's funny that it, it even came up as a, as a part of a consideration that we need to consider these types of things, you know, in my mind, you know, to introduce accountability and, and responsibility into people's lives. But this, this is what it has become, right? This is like, you know, the drawbacks of um, an over-progressive and um, over-technologized world that we live in right and and i love like and it's not to say i i do agree with you and i i myself am a lover of technology to a to a point right and that is important that is very important to note because i think that technology like anything it's a tool and we have like i like to use the analogy of if we you know reflect back to our um hunter-gatherer ancestors right they, without the tools that they developed, you know, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, um, catch different types of, uh, or hunt different types of animals to then feed their tribe and continue to sustain themselves and eventually thrive uh, as, as small communities into bigger communities and things like this. But if they were like overly focused on developing, you know, these unrealistic tools to catch a million animals at one time, then they sort of lose focus of what is actually necessary for them at this point in time, in this moment of, you know, their lives. It's simply to uh, sustain, to feed themselves, feed their families and, and stay alive essentially. Right. There's nothing more to that. There's like a, the difference between 
uh, this this want and a need essentially and uh, to me there's like this fine balance that needs to be played and you we need to sort of tread that to, to a degree it's not to say that you know we can't you know indulge ourselves with nice things every now and then but where is this where is the um i guess where is the where is the point where we sort of say it's in, it's enough and we have enough shit in our house that we've filled ourselves with and sort of just pushed to the side and filled up this empty space that has become more you know meaningless because you know coming back to you know this this view of over commercialized over uh you know uh, economic growth and all these sorts of things there comes a point where where the natural resources that we are using up to to feed this growth is going to dry up you know and if we you know essentially win this battle of continually growing economically we will essentially be you know losing in terms of um the 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 beauty and 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 um i guess uh the, the world that we live in essentially right because uh, to, to at some at some point um of utilizing all the natural resources it's going to run out and when there's going to be a point where we can't turn back um so i think there's that fine line to be tread in terms of tools to assist ourselves and assist us in the betterment of life but then not to uh become reliant upon and then also you know making us um essentially very lazy and, and inept at living life essentially right yeah I, i mean i think you bring up two really really huge huge points in there um this point about resources drying up i think is uh, a really poignant one because in the world of natural resources, things are, are finite, right? Uh, oil is finite, steel is finite. All these things are, are, are finite. Uh, of course, there's recycling and, and whatnot, but things are, are still finite. The thing that is fundamentally different about the world of technology is that attention is infinite. And attention is actually the thing that's being mined by all of these digital technologies, right? Turns out you can be sitting in front of the TV watching Netflix with your laptop open on Twitter and your phone open on Instagram. So what used to be an hour of time can actually be three hours on three different platforms. So that's what becomes really, really interesting about this, this, this world of attention that, that a lot of these companies play on is that actually it's kind of an infinite market that they're playing with, right? Everybody thought social media was dead and then TikTok shows up and turns out kids had an extra two hours of time somewhere to be, you know, doing little dance videos and competitions with each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like these things can just show up out of nowhere. And, you know, it's, 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 it's wild how, you know, uh, it turns out one hour becomes three because you're on three different things at once, right? Of course, while, while not doing anything, um, particularly productive. The second point that I, that I took away from, from what you just said was about, you know, how, how human beings have always used tools. And of, of course, tools are, are very important, kind of separates us from, from every other species on the planet. 
this tool analogy though starts to break down when it comes to digital technologies as well, because if you think about a, I don't know, a hatchet or a hammer, you know, maybe a hammer you go get from the toolbox, you, you maybe build a chair and then you put the hammer back. The hammer doesn't like play on your psychology. It just lies and waits for the next time that you need to use it. So I don't know if there's maybe a, a new word that we need, but I think that tools are things that, that we get to deploy at whatever level of capacity that we deem relevant, and then we get to put them away. Social media, you know, even, even email, right? Like most people, you know, spend a couple hours a day in, in email, most knowledge workers, so to speak. And, you know, a lot of people open up their computer. The first thing they go to is email. And it immediately puts them into a reactive state. Their, their time and their day gets deployed based on whatever other people are dictating that they spend their time on, right? I have this rule where 7.30 to 11, don't open email because that's my most productive time. And I think that I should be in charge of that time and how I spend it rather than it being dictated by whatever the, the incoming, you know, ping says, says it should be spent on. So, I mean, just something, something as simple as like, like what is the default? Like defaults are incredibly powerful. Like the default apps on your phone, the, the default, uh, you know, Google as the default search engine, defaults are incredibly powerful. And if your default is like you open your computer and Twitter is open from last night or, or the first thing that you see is your email or whatever the first thing that you see is, chances are you spend a lot of time there more so than, than other places that might be um, better uses of time. But, you know, the way that we use tools and, and resource allocation, the, the, the world of technology is turning so many of these definitions and so much of our nomenclature on, on its head and, you know, maybe there was never a space where it was more necessary to be to be mindful and, and intentional with how we're spending our time. Because if not, I mean, like, you know, technology addiction is um, is 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 rampant, and it's 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 frightening totally. to be to be honest. Totally. And like, look, I think that you know your example there in terms of like blocking out time for not using certain like applications or technology is, um, you know, and a great example of, of how we can make the choice and really have the responsibility for how we utilize these tools that, you know, we, we have access to. I, I truly believe that, you know, like, like you said, an introduction of mindfulness into anything in life, you, we, we have the choice to do anything. Like, I understand that, you know, um, social media at large, it has, you know, motives that it's trying to drive and, and, and it touches and presses on the wounds of, you know, our human emotions that are easily triggered and easily drawn into. But at the same time, you know, just as your, your example and, and like anything, we can choose to, you know, pick those tools up or we can choose not to, right? Um, our phones, they're in our hands all the time. You know, we can turn off the notifications. We can choose not to, not to, you know, um, check that email when the ping comes through. We can choose not to check Instagram once that, um, that, uh, that like notification or whatever it is, right? There's that choice involved. And the introduction of mindfulness creates a space for us to, you know, 
put that space in front in between the cause and the effect right um instead of it being a, a reactionary thing and like i say it quite you know nonchalantly but it is a difficult thing for us to do especially in these time um these times with you know like you said how um these tech companies they prey on this sort of um um, these urges and desires from from humans just to uh, find connection through these mediums but um you know it's just funny i mean even if we we say that like these these technological platforms can quote unquote create time for us or create perceptions of you know expansion of time you know in your in your example of having multiple um mediums of your phone your laptop your television and things like this like i always come back to a quote that's um you know to do two things at once is to do neither you know i don't believe in multitasking i truly don't and if you apply it with the lens of mindfulness um involved it just doesn't work like the enjoyment the enjoyment and experience the true experience of life is to experience the moment in front of you and what it, whatever it is in front of you right now. And that's it. There's, there's nothing more to it. If you're trying to experience more than one thing at once, then you're not experiencing anything like presence is, is timeless. And that's the paradox there, right? We try to create more time through, you know, doing more things, but when you're present, then time, the concept of time, it, it truly just fades away into nothingness. And you simply experience, you know? Um, so, yeah. You said it far more eloquently than I said it. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, um, there was something that you touched on, which was really important, which was like the intentionality, right? And when you talked about the tools and how we use them, like the hammer, that was really interesting to me because you're right when you want to use a hammer, we're like, I want to use a hammer, I pick it up, I use it, and then I put it back. And it's whenever I want to use the hammer. But on the flip side, it's, the hammers don't use us, right? Whereas like a lot of these uh, platforms, they are using us without us knowing. And that's the interesting part. And I think, yeah, being uh, mindful of that and having intentionality around how you use things is super important for people to think about. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's this question of, of, of choice becomes, I think it's a lot more problematic than, than maybe first meets the eye because it, it's fairly easy to say we all have the choice. I can choose how often to use my phone or not use my phone. I think average screen time now is, is like three and a half or four hours or something like that. Yeah. I guarantee you, if you did a survey and asked people, how much time do you want to spend on your phone every day? None of them would write four hours. So this, this question of choice, uh, maybe, I mean, we, we clearly do have the choice. There's no one holding guns to, to anybody's head, but I don't know if choice is maybe the right word because, you know, coming back with to, to kind of how the technology industry has been built because attention is the resource consumers are, are trained to not pay for anything on the internet. Right. So part of uh, if you look at like behavioral psychology and habit formation, 
building habits has a lot to do with how easy they are to build, right? So when, when all of these products are free and when these products are in your pocket and, you know, it, it, it's much easier to use Facebook than it is for a, a 14 year old to maybe get a pack of cigarettes, right? They got to, you know, stand sketchily outside of a, a gas station and try to hand somebody a $20 bill or something, yeah. um, you know, harder drugs, of course, even more problematic to get their hands on or, or, or something like that, right? But the question of, of choice becomes so problematic because the effort required is so small. It's so, so, so small, right? It's always just right there in your pocket. Um, yeah, you could turn off the notifications, but yeah, and I, I, I have turned off all my notifications. It helps, it, it helps greatly. Um, but I don't know. I, I think this question of choice, I mean, there's folks like uh, Sam Harris has a, a book called Free Will, and it's a really short book. I definitely recommend anybody read it. Um, it's like 90 pages long or something. You can, you can read it on an hour and a half flight. Uh, and he brings a, a neuroscience background to it, but but he would argue that 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 free will actually doesn't exist. That almost everything that you do um, is is neurological and chemical reactions inside of your brain. It's 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 conditioning. Uh, it's the society that you've grown up into. It's the culture. It's 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 all of these things. So uh, again, choice becomes becomes problematic. You know, I was just at home in, in Philadelphia over the holiday, and uh, my 17 year old cousin was there, and I have never seen someone stare at a screen so much. Like she like was just watching TV and movies and games and all just, just constantly. And of course she has the choice to not do that. I'm not sure she does though. You know what I mean? I, I think that everything that she sees and her friends and her social circle and like that is what kids do. So to, to expect uh, a 17 year old to exercise choice to opt out of that system, I think is maybe too tall a task, so to speak. So I don't know, I think we have to think hard about, about this question of, of, of choice. I don't know if it's a question of thinking about certain types of, of, of regulation in the case of, of children in technology. Um, you know, for me, the way that I try to combat it is not to sit her down and say, hey, let's talk about how much time you spend staring at your phone. Or, or these types of things. I try to make it easy to give her alternatives, right? Coming back to that effort question. So when she woke up and she got out of the shower, I was like, hey, I'm gonna walk with me with the dog, right? I tried to fill that time with activities, right? We got back, I said, hey, you know, I, I got all these ingredients. Let's, let's make pizza. And she started to like look at the phone. And I was like, hey, let's put the phones down while we make the pizza. Let's like, whatever the case may be. So again, I tried to subliminally uh, remove the choice and, 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 and fill the space with, with healthier habits. Right. And I, I think that, uh, I don't have any kids myself, but you know, my wife and I are starting to have conversations about having our first kid and, and, and these types of things. And, you know, the thing that we talk more about than anything is not talking about what kids should do, because I think kids don't listen to anything that you say. Kids watch what you do. Right. If you're if you uh, use profane language, if you're um, always on your phone while you're at the park with them, if you're like like, again, the choice and the conversation is, isn't what matters. It's what they see and it's what they assimilate from their environment. And, and it's the type of opportunities that, that, that you give them to, to 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 partake in more beneficial activities. You know, I, I, 
I guess I try to think a little bit differently about, about choice, but you make a, you make a great point. It's just not, I don't know if, if people are quite as equipped as, as we would like them to be. No, and I would agree with you. I would agree with you on that because, um, you know, when you spoke about the screen time and the average screen time, I get that ping that comes up on my phone every Sunday and it's like, you spent this much time on your phone. And I'm like, I spent how much time on my phone? <laughs> right. And I'm all about like choice and being intentional and having your own decisions and, or making your own decisions. But I, I do agree with you, um, you know, that it's, I think it's very hard for us to, to exercise that where we're not conscious of what's actually going on, you know, and, and these things are running in the background and we're, we're kind of, we're reacting to them, right? We're just reacting to them. And um, the accessibility is a really interesting point as well, because it's, it's like goes kind of hand in hand with that health question. It's like, well, right now where we are in, you know, this point in time as humans, we have everything available to us to be, to live really healthy lives. Right. There are people who are incredibly healthy living for, you know, into triple figures till they're hundred. We know a lot more about our health and how we should eat and how we should move things we shouldn't do if we want to live a longer life, but shit, man, people are getting fatter. People are getting <laughs> lazier. They're, they're getting more unhealthy. Right. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's all these things, like you said, the environment you're in, um, what you see going on around you and, and how you respond to that, which um, we're doing subliminally that's actually affecting us. And, and maybe we don't have as much of a, not don't have as much of a choice. I think we do have a choice, but um, maybe we're a bit ignorant as to how we're exercising the faculty of choice. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise we'd all be super healthy. Um, but you know, we all fall into habits of, of eating poorly or not going to exercise and all these things. Um, and like you said, I think if we took a survey of people and were like, do you want to be healthy? Everyone would say, <laughs> of course. Right. But like, we don't do it for some, for, for this myriad of reasons. And I think, yeah, maybe it's in terms of um, how choice is actually playing out and exercised. This is, this is what I want to say about this. Right. And um, it's, it's a tough topic to talk about. And, you know, my, my saying it the way that I do is just a, I guess it's an expression of how I see it and how I exercise it on a daily basis, on a moment to moment basis. Right. And I think that's sort of key to having the ability to exercise choice and free will to the best of your, you know, ability. Right. Precisely. But of course the accessibility of things has made it, you know, infinitely more difficult for us to do so especially if you have been conditioned and brought up in this world, you know, around this environment um, of, of great abundance, great accessibility that, that like is very, you know, counter to our ability to exercise free will and choice. But to, because it is more difficult does not mean it's not possible and it's not there. And this is the point I, I make. And like I said, you know, for me to say it doesn't mean that it's easy. Right. It's, it's, it's very difficult and it's a, you know, a moment to moment practice and it will forever be a practice and practice infers something that you can never master. Right. You are always trying to improve on like, you know, on exercising free will and choice. And by doing this, 
like, you know, by introducing mindfulness and creating that space in your life is the best chance of you having to do that. Right. You create space in between every sort of thing that, that um, subliminal urge, whatever it is. And then you stop for a moment before you make that decision as to what you need to do. And like, let me tell you, you're going to fall on your face time and time again in attempting to make the right choice for you, the quote unquote right choice, what you think is right, you know, for the betterment of your life, for the betterment of your health, all these sorts of things, right? But it is always there and it is always going to be difficult. But we must, like when we are at a place when we acknowledge that and we realize that, yes, it's always going to be there, but it's always going to be difficult, we, we give ourselves the best chance, right? And that, that's all it's about for me, right? Like for me, I, I will always say that we always have choice in everything that we do. And that is an interpretation of what we feel is best at this point in time. And that's always going to evolve as we evolve as human beings. You know, my perception and conception of what is right and the right choice for me is going to change. You know, maybe it's different in five years time. But for me at that moment in time, when I am present to the, to make the choice, I'm going to make the choice or try my best to make the choice that is right for me. Um, and, and that for me is it. Like I, I will never say that we don't have choice. And I understand completely where you both are coming from. It is becoming increasingly, increasingly more difficult. Uh, like, you know, to the point where it may even seem like it's impossible to even have free will and choice, but doesn't mean it's not there. And, and I want to make that clear for everyone. 100%. Yeah. And to be, to be perfectly clear, I think you and I are perfectly aligned and in agreement in that. I, I think, you know, I only, I only point out what I did maybe because um, maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's just that I struggle sometimes with the right language, so to speak, right when, um, you know, for, for example, I'm in a, a book club with, with uh, eight other guys. We had um, uh, a meeting about a year ago and one of the guys in the group is just vehemently against mindfulness, like vehemently. I, I, it was almost like, it was almost like he got, you know, spanked by a monk as a child or something like <laughs> what, what has caused this like certain derision um, in, in his mind. Let, let me, let me get at him, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely got to, got to forgive touch. Um, and it's, you know, it was so, it was so surprising to me because when he, he kind of went on this little bit of a rant about uh, part of it, I think was the, um, you know, meditation and mindfulness in a, in a Western context has become kind of a in thing, right? It has become a little bit cliche. So I, I think a little bit with him was feeling a little bit of a, a, a revulsion from, from, from that, uh, that narrative, so to speak, which makes a ton of sense. There's totally. tons totally. of people that are, um, that are, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Virtue signaling, so to speak, and talk yeah. a lot about mindfulness and actually don't even practice mindfulness. So yeah. I completely understand, uh, that, that reaction, but my, my question to him was, you know, have you ever tried it? And he said, you know, I sat down a couple of times for a few minutes and just nothing happened. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So I, I was like, you know, can you, can you completely rule something out? 
that you tried two or three times for five minutes. Like, like, it, like it, it, if you don't understand, you know, impressionist painting and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you saw like somebody's meme on Twitter about impressionist painting, like, could you just rule that out as an artistic category? No, of course not. Like, you know, you would have to maybe understand the, the history and who are the famous painters. And there's, there's a whole spectrum of impressionist work from lots of different artists in different parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like one, he, he's never really experimented or explored it in any real context. He's never read a book about it or a, a real kind of knowledgeable article or anything like that. So as, as somebody who's very uh, open to you know intellectual discussion, I was surprised at like the lack of exploration, yet making such a strong stand against something. But coming back to the this idea with me, uh, perhaps struggling with language, you know, I was kind of pushing back on the the, the choice of words around choice. Got too many choices in that sentence, mm-hmm. but <laughs> you know, I I completely agree with you. I think that to to, to sit down and cultivate a um, a mindfulness practice is, 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 is well within everybody's capacities. Of course, will everyone do it? Most likely not. Um, you know, even with my own experience, you know, I read um, a book called Awakening the Buddha Within back in, this must have been 2011. And I was kind of blown away by the, the, the ideas, uh, started to meditate a little bit off and on. Uh, it wasn't until 2017 that I built kind of a daily and disciplined practice. And that was after doing a virtual meditation retreat called Camp Calm, which is this amazing program. I, I think it actually kind of echoes of, of your Finding Space program and that it starts with a very short, you know, bite-sized exercise. You do it you know, for 30 days, you do a short reading and then you maybe sit for five minutes and the sitting starts with guided and then it starts to kind of ease you into unguided and the sitting gets longer and longer throughout the 30 days. And, and by the end of that, I had built a daily practice that I've kept until now. So, you know, it took me seven years, so to speak. Um, uh, and it's difficult to say, you know, why, or, or maybe, you know, maybe it was certain you know, contributing factors that, that were happening in my life. So the, the choice is 100% there. And it's a choice that we can, we can make. Um, I guess I, I, I struggle and I'd be actually curious to hear from, from you, Leslie, and when you're speaking to somebody who is completely outside of the, the world and experience of, of, of mindfulness, what type of language and vernacular do you use without, you know, a lot, a lot of people, when things start to sound uh, quote unquote, woo woo, they, they shut down, mm. right. Or, or they stop paying attention or things get a little bit too mystical. You know, if you start thinking about enlightenment, they, 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 they lose interest. But like, what is, what is the, uh, the kind of crawl walk run or the, the introductory language that, that you use to start introducing to people to, to these concepts? Well, I guess the good the good thing about you know the 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 time that we're in now, a lot of people would have some sort of entry level understanding of what, or or some sort of like you know at least a stereotypical conception of what meditation is. You know, if it's if the least of it is just you know sitting at the side of a mountain uh, in full lotus position and chanting Om, right? They at least have some idea of what it's all about and. Um, you know, a lot of uh, mainstream media has has 
uh, already discussed uh, a lot of research about its um, benefits, so to speak. So for, for me, like a lot of the time, it's, it's not so much about convincing them what, what it can do for them because a lot of people nowadays, I feel, and more and more know the potential of what it is, right? And, and like you said, that, that it's the entry point is the hardest. It's just like that, that analogy of, you know, going to the gym. The hardest part is actually getting there, right? And it's like anything. I'm, I'm, I'm writing my book at the moment. And the hardest part for me to write and get into the writing is just to sit down and like put pen to paper. That is the hardest part right now. Or oh, sorry, put, put words into my word processor, right? That's the, the technology that I'm using. That's the hardest part. So it's, it's an introduction into like into the practice itself in that it is a practice and, and just not, not trying to sell them anything and not trying to say that, you know, it's as easy as this or it's easy as de-stressing or you just, you know, call upon this, you know, magical recording if you need, you know, um, to get a better night's rest or anything. You know, I'm very practical and I'm very straightforward and, and transparent and honest about what it's about. Like my program, the first module, um, I don't even call that practice meditation. I just want you to literally, you know, listen to my words, just sit down and breathe. Like don't even think about meditation, sit down and breathe. Anyone can do that, right? But you also know that the program is at least seven to nine months long. And this is how long it takes to even, you know, start to develop a foundation or a semblance of a foundation of meditation. And you know this through your practice. And, you know, we've all done this if we have a consistent practice, right? But that's it for me. Like, it's, it's about, like, you know, essentially disseminating truth of what I believe it is. And if you resonate with that, it's cool, right? jump on board. But if you don't, then you will come to a point where you will, right? Or that is my hope anyway. And if you don't, that's cool as well, right? Then my medicine is not for you, but that's fine as well. Like I know that my medicine doesn't, doesn't cure all. It cures those who resonate and, and gravitate towards it for whatever reason, you know, whether it's the way that I speak, how I, I speak the truth about what it is. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not trying to market. Um, I am simply speaking about, you know, the true essence and what I believe is the best, you know, way forward for creating a daily practice. Yeah, and, and that is a lifelong relationship, which will lead to a lifelong relationship with the meditative art. You know, it is an art, it is a practice for life, you know, and, you know, like, I do use things that, you know, uh, uh, that seem like woo-woo or, or highly esoteric, but I say, it, I say them in, in a practical manner. And if you take them as esoteric or woo-woo, you know, that's just a matter of interpretation in my mind, you know. So, so really, like, for me, if you come to the practice or come to, you know, uh, the table, you know, there's a few sort of, quotes or, or aphorisms uh, in the Western philosophy that I love to love to use to sort of paint the picture of what it's about, right? If you come to the floor with, with things like, you know, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive, right? So I'm not going to come as a teacher and say, I'm your teacher. Listen to me. When you're ready, the teacher will arrive for you. And a true master knows nothing, right? 
So that keeps you humble in knowing that there's always something for you to learn and practice. And then the last one is, you know, before enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water, but after enlightenment, you also chop wood and carry water. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So these sorts of things, these are the principles and like um, foundational understandings that you have to sort of have understand and sort of resonate with to enter into something like meditation or any sort of daily practice of mindfulness because it, it's like I said time and time again it's like the hardest thing in the world but um, it's most rewarding as well if you're willing to you know commit to it on a consistent basis 100% I mean I, I I continue to be just blown away about how it just touches every aspect of life Right. It's, it's, I mean, it's not unlike the, you know, we've come back to the, to the, to the fitness example a, a couple different times, but you know, when I got a little bit more serious about health, it was like you know, working out, you know, led to eating better ed, led to better sleep, led to more control over emotions and, and, and my mental state led to just uh, mental capacity, uh, intellectual capacity that was higher. It, it, like our, our, our entire lives are like this, this series of, of concentric circles. And I'm, I'm, I'm working on this, this idea called the ecology of, of human experience because everything is just so interconnected. And I, mindfulness is probably the, the, the pinnacle uh, of, uh, of examples uh, when, when thinking about that, like it, it just, it just, it, it touches everything. It, it touches literally every single part of life. And I, I think that's one of the things that I, I often kind of come back to when I talk to people about it is that like, if there's one thing that you could do that could improve everything else that you do, would you maybe be interested in exploring that? <laughs> if the answer to that question is, is not yes, I'm not sure what, what we're talking about here. <laughs> maybe, maybe the conversation just kind of falls off the edge if, if the answer to that question is, is no, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> absolutely man no i guess you know earlier you were telling us about how your life was always in motion so how did you actually you know you told us about the 45 browsers and that was kind of a moment where you're like what is going on but was there like a point where you just realized that the motion wasn't doing it for you and then how did you come to mindfulness yourself jeremy it's a great question um you know, I, I, I think about a couple different times uh, in, in my life. So when I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, when I read the uh, Awakening the Buddha Within, I, I, I wrote that, uh, read that rather, um, back in 2010, as I was uh, going through a breakup with my girlfriend at the time. Um, and lucky for me, we got back together and she's now my wife. So it didn't completely mess everything up. Um, but, you know, I think of course, you know, that, that fracture in a, a very important relationship, uh, caused me to start doing some, some, some soul searching and I'm not sure exactly what led me to this specific book or, or this specific category of books. Um, I, I do know, I, I grew up um, as um, a Baptist uh, Christian. Um, and I say I grew up as a Baptist Christian, not because I believed in it really deeply or anything like that. It's just the situation that I was, was, was born into. Um, and when my dad got locked up, 
uh, he converted to Islam while, while he was in prison. So, you know, I would talk to him on the phone or, or a few times when he was like out and in between kind of going back or, he, you know, he was talking to me a lot about, about Islam. And when he did that, it was kind of the first time that I had considered like, oh, there's a completely different group of people that have a completely different interpretation of these religious texts and a completely different worldview of, uh, of what it means to live a good life and, and how one should, how one should live. Uh, so then when that happened, I was uh, kind of in middle school and that's the time where uh, people of the Jewish faith start having bar and bat mitzvahs. Um, and I started, uh, I got like a, uh, the Torah is just, I guess, the Old Testament. So went back and did a lot more reading of, of the Old Testament. And at that point, I read it from a, not this is what you should think or how you should live your life, but more just like, why do people believe what they believe? And like just being curious about belief systems, I guess, more more broadly. So I, I got into high school and I read... Uh, the Bhagavad Gita. I read uh, a whole host of, of, of different religious texts and this kind of idea came into my mind that like, wow, there's lots of different belief systems. So maybe like and people, every different group considers their belief system to be true, right? And to be real. Um, so maybe the Awakening the Buddha was in was, was another progression of that because I had never really um, uh, explored any uh, Eastern traditions or Eastern philosophies at, at all. So maybe it was just kind of the next um, iteration of that, of that same uh, exploration. But I think that was a part of it. I, I think that I'm trying to remember when I, when I did the virtual meditation retreat, uh, I probably found out about it. There's a, a blog that I often read called Raptitude. And it's a blog all about like mindfulness and, and how to live a good life. And the guy who writes it was the guy who created Camp Calm. So I think I found out about that course from the blog that brought me back into the world for the virtual meditation retreat. And, and that experience was so uh, transformative that you know, from that point on, it kind of it completely shook how I, how I saw the world. And, you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing, or it probably just wasn't one, but there was this one exercise where you would sit down for however long, you could do it for 30 seconds, and you just focus on your breath and you count your breaths. And the thing, the, the challenge, so to speak, or the task was uh, how high could you get in counting before you became distracted? And I think the first time, maybe I got to like seven and started thinking about something random. And then the next time was like 11 and then it was like 13. And, you know, I was like a month into trying this and I was at like 24. <laughs> I was like, wow. Like I actually have very little control over my mind. Like here I am thinking I'm exercising so much agency and, and doing all these things, but you know, actually my, I have a very untrained mind because I've never actually explored uh, these parts of my mind. And I think that simple exercise completely woke me to the idea that, okay, we do have choice and agency, but most of us just completely ignore that entire mental space, right? 
so I guess that confluence of different events, is, uh, events and experiences um, kind of led me to this place where uh, mindfulness played a, a larger part of my life. And, you know, what's interesting about mindfulness as it relates to identity, you know, when we first built identity, it was, it was kind of a, a side project to a side project, so to speak. I have a, a business partner and we were actually working on uh, building a different software project. And in the process of building that, uh, we needed to share access to tons of different systems. So the database and the CRM and all the different developer tools and these things. So for a while, we were just like text messaging each other. Um, you know, here's the, the password for this, or here's the URL for this. And we were like four months into this project and we had like 40 different systems that, that we were using. So this process of texting and trying to figure things out that way was just completely untenable. So my, my partner being a, a brilliant engineer kind of built this simple tool uh, over a weekend that would allow us to, to simplify and organize all the different tools that we were using. So that was, was just for the two of us, was just an internal tool. And, you know, we mentioned it to a couple of friends as we were, you know, at happy hours and, and, and these types of things. And, you know, about six months later, there were like 150 people using this thing that wasn't even our primary project. And we were like, huh, this is interesting. So I started to think about like, okay, like clearly this helps us kind of simplify and organize this, but like, I, like we were using it so much that we just started having conversations of like, like, why is this so useful? Like, what is this actually doing? What is the problem that it's actually solving? And a, a friend of mine recommended me um, the, a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. And her idea is that, you know, organizing your, your home or your physical space can be this tool for organizing your mind, right? If you can be uh, more intentional about the things that you buy and how you fill your space, then you can be more intentional about everything that you do in life. So people would go through Marie Kondo's uh, uh, kind of organizing process and then they would write to her like a month later and they got a divorce or they like rekindled their relationship with their children or they like lost a bunch of weight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it hit me kind of in that moment as I finished reading that book that, wow, like organizing your life on the internet is, is the same thing. Actually, you know, this whole mindfulness thing that I've been exploring, like this is just bringing intentionality to the internet in a, in a very literal way. And that's when it kind of clicked in me, like, wow, like not only is this super useful, there's actually a huge opportunity here, not just the, this, the literal organization of the things that you do on the internet, but I kind of felt like there's an opportunity to create a, uh, a Trojan horse, so to speak, of, of, of infiltrating people's minds with mindfulness with, without necessarily even telling them that that's what we're doing. And as they mm -hmm. use the software and adopt it and, and, and it becomes an everyday part of their life, then they start listening to the podcasts and then they start reading some of the emails and then they start being more intentional about, about other aspects of their life. And, and it just became this kind of snowball of, 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 of excitement and, and, and vibrancy. And, uh, and, and then kind of the whole business and, and vision was born from, from there. So there was a lot of different things that kind of piled on top of each other to, to, to create kind of how I, how I operate today. And I think um, 
usually that that is the way things will you know unfold and manifest for themselves like it there's no to to me like what i took from your story and what you just shared there is that there really isn't a fixed path or there isn't any sort of clarity to be had in terms of how we get to the points we we get to but the keys to getting there really is is having like i guess a sense of an awareness and and honoring that curiosity that we have within ourselves you know and just like asking a little bit further why was i curious about this thing like you know to to your example about all the different you know exploration of um theological texts right from from one one principle to the other one discipline to the other that sort of started um you know from from your uh your religious upbringing um, up until the, the the notion or the expansion of of uh, understanding of different types of texts, or no, or knowing that there are different types of understandings and interpretations of uh, theological text, and then you know that that has led you to doing the things that you do today, like in a roundabout way. But it always seems to be that way, right? In terms of like intentionality, and um, it always just comes back to if we have an awareness of these intuitive, curious cues within ourselves. We owe it to ourselves to honor them, respect them. And to the very least, just ask a question, why, you know, why do I feel a little bit of something towards this? And if it means something to you, wonderful. If it doesn't, that's cool as well, you know. But like to me, it's like these, you're gathering all these mini or just finding all these like mini uh, puzzle pieces along the way of this like you know uh, emotional roller coaster of life, and then eventually you have like your pockets full of these puzzle pieces that don't come together as much until one one specific moment when everything just comes together and joins everything together into like a uh, I guess a, a visible um, interpretable image for yourself that that is like really more representative of a, of a, uh, I guess, an inner yearning of life or innate sort of uh, gravitation towards for yourself. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that we could talk for, for hours. <laughs> I think like, you know, even if we left this open to like, you know, Joe Rogan style, we would <laughs> far, far exceed the three, four hours, but um what I might do is that uh, I'm going to probably end this one here for now, but we will definitely have to have you back on Jeremy, um, you know, because like I said, I'm, I'm sure that we have much, much more to talk about and, and sort of um, discuss and, and just, uh, you know, converse over. So yeah, thank you for joining us today, mate. Really appreciate your time. And it was an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you again. And like I said, I'm looking forward to our next one. But um, I want to give you the space to, you know, share uh, about yourself, anything that you want to plug, uh, your websites, things like this, and uh, to our audience and so they can find you. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Um, you know, fruitful conversations are one of my favorite uh, activities to, to partake in uh, and you two gentlemen make that incredibly easy and, and enjoyable to do. So uh, again, I appreciate the, the time from, from you guys and the invite. Um, as far as me from a personal perspective, 
Um, I'm on all the, the the major platforms. Probably the ones that uh, I'm most active are are Instagram and Twitter. So Twitter is jhurst12, and Instagram is jhurst1221. Uh, I love the number 12. It was my basketball number starting when I was uh, six years old, and it has uh, made its way throughout my life in every facet since then. So you'll, you'll see that number show up a lot. Um, on the identity side, it's a little bit of a weird spelling, I-D-E-N-A-T-I. So that's uh, just identity.com and then identity on all the, all the social platforms as well. So uh, feel free to, to reach out. We, we're always down to connect with folks. Yeah, thanks, man. And uh, we will add all those uh, links in the show notes for people to find you. So, um, yeah, people can look you up and say good day and uh, touch base with Jeremy. So, yeah. Um, Shauna, where can people find you, mate? Yeah, easiest place to find me is just on Instagram. So, Sean underscore Coop. That's S H A U N underscore C O O P. And how about you, Les? Where can I find you? Yeah, you can touch base with me through my website, findingspace.co. Um, you can touch base with me uh, through that medium and say good day, send me an email or, you know, find out more about, uh, you know, my offerings. Uh, it's all on there, my website, findingspace.co, um, as well as my social platforms, Facebook and Instagram. It's also findingspace.co. Um, if you want to send Sean and I an email directly through uh, for this podcast, if you want to ask us any questions or you want to get in touch with Jeremy or you want to become a guest, anything at all, uh, our email address is the hustle and flow podcast at gmail.com. Cool. And I just want to take a moment, Jeremy, to just thank you again for coming on today, man. It was um, really enjoyable for, for me. And I know it would be for Les as well, speaking for him, which I don't usually like to do, but um, yeah, man, it was a real pleasure. And I can tell you're, really inquisitive individual and um you know it's really interesting the steps of your life to from where you've come from to where you are today and like let's said all those puzzle pieces they sound like they're clicking for you now um in identity and, and how that's come together for you and i'm really excited to see how that pans out for you so thanks again for joining us man and for sharing your story with us really appreciate it thank you guys definitely will take you guys up on the, on the round two at some point in the future so very much looking forward to it Awesome. Looking forward to it too. And um, if you're listening and made it this far, um, if you got something out of the conversation today, which I'm sure you did, please just share it with one other person, family member, friend, a colleague, um, someone that just loves podcasts and want to give them something uh, interesting to listen to because um, that's how we grow the podcast. We don't advertise. Um, you know, we just really want to have these conversations, get them into the ears of people and hopefully you take as much from them as we do and do something with them, have a different perspective, think a bit differently, feel a bit differently, and then do a bit differently. So until next time, guys. See you guys.